Hello everybody, welcome. We're glad you could join us today. Today's webinar will provide a detailed overview of a recent issues paper, which highlights the need for a strategic rebalancing of priorities to include the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions as a key consideration in all road transport network operations planning and decision-making. My name's Elena Gardner. I'm the Communications Manager at Austroads and I'll be moderating today's session. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian transport and traffic agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Austroads uses a program management approach to deliver its work, and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the network program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. Richard is on the line with us and is going to provide a quick overview of how this project fits in with the strategic objectives of the program. Hi, Richard. Hi, Elena. Thanks for organising this uh, webinar. Um, so I just wanted to take this opportunity opportunity to provide a bit of context prior to the more detailed presentation. The road transport sector made of personal and freight vehicle movement is responsible for approximately 14% of the overall greenhouse gas emissions in Australia. And this share is not reducing at this stage when considering pre-COVID-19 data. As we will see in the following presentation, Accelerating the exit of internal combustion engine vehicles from the fleet in concert with accelerated interventions for new sales of low and zero emission vehicles can put us on trajectories leading below 1990 levels. But these accelerated interventions are undoubtedly complex to put in place. Facing this fact, the network task force under my program commissioned this piece of work to better understand the extent to which low and zero emission vehicles can address the issue of greenhouse gas emission reduction, and subsequently to identify if other actions are required in road transport planning and operations. The evidence-based approach taken in this issue's paper shows that the accelerated adoption of low and zero emission vehicles needs to be considered within a holistic approach. This paper, provides an initial framework to better consider greenhouse gas emission reduction as a key area of focus in road transport network operations, alongside our traditional, I would say, strategic objectives of road safety and network efficiency. We are very excited uh, today to, to release and, and present on this issue's paper, as it frames our work forward in developing improved national guidance for people and goods movement. It is also, I would say, particularly timely with the current reflections that we see in the transport industry on the new normal for transport post COVID-19, as well as the recent release of the technology investment roadmap discussion paper by the Commonwealth Department of Industry. So on that, uh, I look forward to the Q&A sessions uh, after the detailed presentation and I hand over back to you, Elena. Great, thanks so much, Richard. So yeah, just a bit of housekeeping um, before we get into the presentation. 
Um, the speaker today is going to talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A that will run for about 15 minutes. We do record all of our sessions and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handouts section in your sidebar. You'll find that over on the right-hand side of your screen. And if you run into any technical problems today, uh, please let me know via the questions section of your handout, of your sidebar. Um, but if uh, you do lose sound or your picture freezes, that is most likely an issue with your connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that issue. Um, in the handout section, you'll also find the report that this, that this um, session is based on and you can download that. If you're joining us from the recording, the issues paper can be downloaded from our website. So please do send us any questions you have for the Q&A. Uh, it's just a matter of simply typing your questions into the question box at any stage of the webinar. It is really helpful if you can let us know the slide number that your question relates to. That just allows us to get some context to your question. And it can be helpful to have the PDFs of the slides available to refer back to for the slide numbers. And just a reminder that you can download them from the handout section. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Richard Palmer. Richard is a Principal Sustainability Consultant at Integral Group, a global engineering and sustainability firm supporting the transition to net zero emissions. Richard supported the approach to sustainability within the Future Transport Strategy 2056 for Transport for New South Wales. He has over a decade's experience working on major urban renewal pro projects, addressing decarbonisation through demand management, utilities and mobility strategies. Hi Richard, it's great to have you with us today. Elena, good afternoon and hello to everyone who has joined the uh, the webinar. Thank you so very much for your time. Um, Elena, you're going to throw across to me to I share my am. screen now. Should, you Thank should you have that now. so much. Yes, I do. Uh, just confirming that that's coming through okay? That's it. Thank you very much. Perfect. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much again for your time. Um, this afternoon, uh, I'm going to speak through the paper that we've done in, in conjunction with Ausroads. Uh, I'll share a little bit of the, the methodology and the scope and, and what went into the paper, uh, a little bit on the global context around climate change, uh, some thinking around uh, transport and roads in the Australian and New Zealand context. Then we'll look a little bit at electric vehicles and the role that the, the market approach to electric vehicles can play in emissions reduction. Uh, then we'll look at some other levers for, for decarbonisation. And then hopefully at the end, we'll draw that together into some insights that might provide some strategic direction for decision makers in the network management uh, sphere. So without much further ado, uh, let me get started. Uh, the, the scope and, and methodology that went into this. The first thing to acknowledge is our project team. No, no project like this is done alone. So I would like to acknowledge uh, Richard Del Place, our project manager on the Osroad side. Uh, from a consultant perspective, I led this piece of work from Integral Group with support from Cassandra Distigda, uh, a consultant in my team. Uh, we had a review team from the network task force uh, and the jurisdictional members of the network task force in particular and they provided invaluable support as we went through the paper in giving it context at a jurisdictional level across australia and new zealand uh, in framing this piece of work our approach is kind of addressed by a series of questions uh, and the thinking was well what is the task in reducing emissions? What does the science tell us needs to be done 
if we're to maintain a safe and livable climate. Then when we look at that task, what is the level of ambition that is reflected in policy in Australia and New Zealand? Uh, then we can unpack that and bring it down to a sectoral level. What role does transportation play? And particularly, what role does the road network play, both in its share of emissions, but also in its trajectory in driving emissions growth or decarbonisation? Then how might existing trends in the electrification sector, I think a lot of weight has been put onto the electrification sector to drive emissions reduction. Uh, how much heavy lifting, if I can put it that way, does the uh, electrification of vehicles play in driving emissions reduction? And then finally, if electric vehicles aren't sufficient to reach our level of ambition, what other opportunities do we have to drive emissions reduction? And that's essentially what I'm gonna be speaking through in the session today. So we can start this conversation with a, a question around uh, the, the, the task and the policy framework and the levels of ambition that we see in Australia and New Zealand. Now, I feel quite a high level of confidence that most of you joining the call today will be aware of the broad issues around climate change, uh, around climate change driven by the emission of um, greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide. In 2015, uh, the world came to a, a global agreement for the first time around how we might limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction and thus limit uh, the, the temperature rise due to them. And that, that agreement was signed in Paris at, at COP21. And the key parts of that agreement were that the world agreed to uh, limit climate change to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels. And then as a secondary issue, pledged to uh, make substantial efforts to achieve no more than one and a half degrees rise above pre-industrial levels. Now, as subs uh, subsequent to the Paris Agreement, um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, undertook a, a subsidiary report which made the case for one and a half degrees and why the global investment to limit climate change to no more than one and a half degrees is a very worthwhile undertaking. Now today, I'm not gonna go into the detail of the modeling that informed the Paris Agreement or the modeling that informed the case for one and a half degrees. Those are, are very authoritatively done in the IPCC assessment reports. Um, what I will do though is start to present some of the outcomes of those reports so that we can draw upon them when we look at the opportunities and, and constraints in, in the transport and the road sector particularly. Now, when we speak about temperature rise, uh, for every um, forecast temperature rise, there is an equivalent emissions pathway. So the chart at the top shows uh, with a certain level of certainty and, and, and there is a level of uncertainty in the modeling. Uh, we do have a band of, of emissions, but there are certain emissions pathways that correspond to different predicted rises in temperatures with a certain level of confidence. When we look at the emissions pathway for one and a half degrees, uh, that's the, the, the chart uh, on the bottom at the right, um, that gives us a sense of what our global emissions need to do to have a relatively high likelihood of achieving this goal of no more than one and a half degrees. And that pathway can best be summed up by three key points. The first point is that we need to reduce emissions by at least 50% globally by 2030 from 2018 levels. The second key point is that we need to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. 
And then over the back half of the century, we need to have a drawdown on atmospheric CO2 such that we have net negative emissions over the back half of the century. Now, that is the, the emissions task as it's presented to us as a global community. Now, it is quite difficult to link global needs and global goals, even to national needs and goals, and then down to um, jurisdictional level ambitions and goals. Uh, and this paper will, will seek to demonstrate how that process has taken place. Another noteworthy uh, comment out of Paris is that the, the commitments made at Paris are what we refer to as NDCs, or Nationally Developed Contributions. They are the individual cuts that countries have pledged to make in support of this temperature goal. And at the moment, as things stand, the combined nationally developed contributions of all of the countries that are signatories to the Paris Agreement are not sufficient to get us onto that one and a half degree pathway. There is what, we, what is known as the emissions gap, and that emissions gap is the difference between the current national level of ambition when aggregated globally and the overall global emissions trajectory required to meet the one and a half degree threshold. So at this stage, we face immediately a high level challenge around the current nationally developed contributions and their capacity to give effect to the Paris Agreement with respect to, um, to temperature rise. Um, which then begs the question, what's happening in Australia? Now, the first thing to note, in Australia and New Zealand, I should say, um, Australia has a nationally developed contribution of 26 to 28% um, reduction by 2030, um, as per INDC. Uh, New Zealand has made a, a commitment under Paris of 30% reduction from 2005 levels. However, New Zealand does also have a, a secondary legislative framework for net zero emissions by 2050. And it was one of the early movers um, in terms of global policy with respect to making uh, a legislative commitment to achieve um, net zero emissions by 2050. Now, there has been a great deal of commentary around the Australian federal position, and this presentation in this paper does not seek to interrogate that in any further detail uh, than is presented in, in, in the documentation. Uh, however, when we take a step down within the Australian context and we look at the states and territories, what we can note is that every state and territory in Australia has established a publicly stated ambition to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 as well. And when we're speaking in the transport context, it's often the jurisdictional, the, the states and territories uh, that have the greatest role to play in formulating policy, particularly as it relates to something like network management. Now, when we look at emissions in Australia and New Zealand, uh, the chart to the left, um, the orange lines present the total emissions uh, since 1990. The red lines, and this is probably particularly uh, pertinent in Australia's case, present total emissions excluding LULUCEF. So that's land use, land use change and forestry. And what that does is it brings us back to almost like the operating emissions, if you will, of an economy. And so what we can see in Australia is that the, uh, those emissions excluding land use, land use change and policy have incrementally and gradually continued to rise pretty much every year since we started recording emissions. In New Zealand, it's a slightly different story. Uh, emissions um, excluding LULUCEF have peaked somewhat and have plateaued, but in neither case have we seen a material change in trajectory of the emissions pathway of either nation. 
What you will hear from me today a fair bit is this talk about trajectory, and by trajectory I mean the direction of travel, as well as the question of uh, the, the, the quantum of emissions that we're seeing. But the majority of the commentary around, uh, in terms of emissions today, is how do we change our trajectory? How do we change our direction of travel? Um, it's not just policy, though. There are many other um, frameworks and levers that are driving decarbonisation. Uh, the Australian Reserve Bank is a member of the network for greening the financial system. And one of the major changes we've seen over the, the, the past few years has been the rise in the um, financial regulatory sector in building a parallel framework for driving emissions reduction through finance by assessing risk, by assessing opportunity, and, and trying to understand the, the financial implications, both of the transition away from fossil fuels and of some of the direct, like, the direct impacts we might be able to attribute to climate change. Uh, what we're seeing there is that, um, for instance, the Bank of England Prudential Regulatory Authority has introduced climate risk assessments into their stress testing of financial institutions. We've seen the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority begin to signal that they may do the same. Uh, we've seen some signals from the Bank of International Settlements around how the, um, the, the role between financial institutions and between reserve banks of, of different nations might need to adjust to take account of climate risk and what's known as the carbon bubble, which is uh, financial risk as a result of climate change. We've seen some um, big interventions uh, around the description of directors' duties, and, and um, we've seen a legal opinion commissioned by the Centre of Policy Development that brings climate risk into the, the realm of directors' duties. And we've seen in, in the forum of trade that the conversation leads towards the idea of border carbon adjustments, whereby uh, the different emissions intensity within different jurisdictions can actually have a role in trade and trade competitiveness. So we've seen the material consideration of emissions come not just through public policy, but also through financial governance and through international relations as it relates to trade. And these things are particularly sensitive in the transportation sector because we rely on investment. We have a model of investment that is both public and private. Uh, transport is a key contributor to our trade competitiveness. And so the sector has a meaningful role to play within these uh, other levers that are being pulled at a, at a higher level, at a policy, at a financial regulatory level relating to climate change. So what does it mean for our sector, for transport and roads in the Australian greenhouse gas accounts? Well, the first thing to note is that transport emissions are a substantial contributor to emissions and that they have been growing consistently since about 1990. Um, when we break that down, what we see is that road emissions are by far the largest contributor to our net emissions um, picture, but road emissions have also been the primary driver of emissions growth over that same period of time. So when we look at transport within the overall greenhouse gas accounts, we can say it's significant, and when we look at road transport within the um, within the greenhouse gas within the the sector, we can say road transport is a key driver of emissions growth in the transportation sector. And then when we look at the road sector, particularly, we can start to get a bit of a sense of what vehicle types are driving this kind of outcome. And certainly, um, passenger vehicles, private passenger vehicles, cars, essentially, are a 
a large driver of, of emissions and, and make up the bulk of our transport-related emissions. But heavy-duty vehicles, light commercial vehicles, also play a significant role in contributing to emissions. And so any efforts to decarbonize the road sector needs to look both at passenger vehicles, heavy-duty vehicles, and light commercial vehicles. And not to jump ahead of myself, but certainly one of the conversations around electrification is that it's possibly skewed a little bit towards the passenger vehicle sense, and we really need to see uh, the equivalent consideration in, in heavy duty and light commercial vehicle um, spheres. Um, what we've done, so having drawn this data, what we've then done a relatively simplistic forecast, um, the growth trajectories over the past 20 to 30 years are relatively linear. Uh, what we've done is we've taken a linear forecast of those trajectories of, of emissions in the transportation sector, and we forecast them out to 2050. And that's provided the baseline for us to give some consideration to the impact that different sorts of policy interventions might make. What we can say, though, is that left unabated, if we just do nothing, the road sector trajectory presents a material challenge to our overall emissions reduction um, efforts. If emissions in the transport and the road sector continue to rise, and at a state and territory, and in New Zealand's case, at a national level, we genuinely seek to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, any emissions growth in this sector is gonna to have to be made up with negative emissions somewhere else within the economy. And that perhaps beyond anything else presents a, a major question that we as policymakers need to, to take on board which is as we see various levers pulled to achieve this ambition of net zero emissions by 2050, we're going to need to seriously consider the role that road transportation plays in contributing to those emissions. What we can see is that the trajectory of business as usual is quite fundamentally misaligned with the trajectory required to get to one and a half degrees. And so while those two things are operating at cross purposes, uh, we will either need to make up a gap somewhere else, which in, puts the cost of emissions reduction elsewhere in the economy and perhaps not optimally, um, or we're going to have to change the trajectory in the top chart. And that's really what, what this paper is about. Now, that brings us to a question around electric vehicles. Um, the discourse around emissions in, in the transportation sector tends to electric vehicles very, very quickly. Um, there are very, very sound reasons for that. It, it's quite exciting technology. Uh, electric vehicles are cool. Um, I like them. I'm sure many of you like them too. Uh, they also represent a, a major economic opportunity in terms of the good news story. Uh, there's some quite compelling economic cases as to why electric vehicles are a net gain uh, within for, for consumers. Uh, for government, for, for, for others. Um, so there's a, there's a compelling case for why electric vehicles are a good idea. Uh, there's also quite a strong market sentiment swinging towards electric vehicles, and we're seeing the, the natural growth of electric vehicles within new sales. What we have done is we've asked the question, what are the forecasts for electric vehicles? Um, how might, if those forecasts come to be, what sort of impact might those have on emissions? And is it material? And if it is material, uh, how can we support it? And if it's not material, uh, what else do we need to do in order to affect emissions reduction in the road sector? 
So we've looked at a couple of um, sources of data. The first is some work done by Osroads. Uh, the first, we've, we've, we've looked at two um, Osroads studies. One is around enabling electric vehicles, and the other is some forecasting work uh, around the likely penetration of electric vehicles. So the first piece uh, is re re reference to a, a piece of work that Enia provided to, to Osroads, and it looks at three scenarios around electric vehicle sales. Uh, it looks at a, a no intervention scenario, a moderate intervention scenario, and an accelerated intervention scenario, which show the progress of electric vehicle passenger vehicle sales out to 100% of sales somewhere between the mid 2030s and the late 2040s, depending on the, on the enabling policy environment. Uh, what we need to know about electric vehicles, though, in the context of emissions is that it's not just about the vehicles. Uh, it's also about the grid because the rate at which we decarbonize the grid uh, has a, a substantial role to play in the rate at which electric vehicles are able to take account of a cleaner grid to drive emissions reduction. So I guess to, to clarify, electric vehicles have two key benefits in emissions. The first key benefit is drivetrain efficiency. They are more efficient machines at turning energy into movement. Uh, that's a great thing, um, but then that accounts for a, a substantial chunk of the emissions reduction. Uh, the second piece, though, is that when they're able to draw upon a very low emissions grid, then they're able to drive that emissions relating to transportation down substantially. Now, um, McKinsey with the Bloomberg New Energy Finance did some predictive work uh, a few years ago around the relative emissions intensity of electric vehicles in different jurisdictions. Um, they've looked at the United Kingdom, they looked at China, and they looked at the United States being three um, big electric vehicle markets. Now, uh, what we've done is we have taken a view um, that EVs will show a 50% improvement in emissions compared to internal combustion engine vehicles out to 2030. And we've set our horizon at 2030, and I'll go into that as well in a minute as to why. What that does is it recognizes that the Australian grid is not super clean yet. Um, so we're not at UK levels of decarbonisation yet. We're more akin to the United States in terms of our grid makeup. However, we are seeing uh, some indications from AEMO, among others, that there are scenarios under which the Australian electricity grid will decarbonise very quickly, uh, relating to the natural end of life of the coal generation um, power stations uh, that are likely to be replaced with cleaner forms of energy. Um, again, this, this paper doesn't go into a huge amount of detail on grid transformation, but we have made uh, an assumption around that uh, relative emissions intensity between EVs and internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, the second thing is, well, how many EVs are we selling? And we've looked then at the, the forecast, so not so much the scenarios around if this policy, then that, but what are, uh, under business as usual market conditions, what sorts of forecasts might we see for the electric vehicle sector. And um, the sales forecast for EV passenger vehicles are approximately 2% of sales as of last year, increasing to around 23% by 2030. So this is reflecting on the, on the predictive um, Osroads paper rather than the, um, the consideration of different policy scenarios. And this represents a fleet penetration of electric vehicles of approximately 7% by 2030. Now, when we factor in the emissions reduction of those vehicles, uh, and we consider 7% fleet penetration by 2030, we end up with a moderately diverted emissions trajectory. So the blue baseline uh, is the forecast emissions trajectory that we 
took from the the, the greenhouse gas accounts at a at a at a transportation at a road transportation level, um, and all things being equal, electric vehicles can play a role in driving emissions down by a few percentage points by 2030. Now that is a an important consideration, um, but I think it's quite clear that that in its own right doesn't get us across the line when it comes to considering a trajectory that sees a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and a 100% reduction in emissions by 2050. So the initial view of EV penetration in the market doesn't support um, or doesn't uh, lend itself to doing all of the heavy lifting that the sector would need to do to be consistent with a Paris Agreement trajectory. The second thing that's really salient is how long vehicles last. Um, how, how, at what age do, do existing vehicles exit the fleet? So we've seen um, the, 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 the predictive work um, that, that Osroads have done for the, the Future Vehicles Program looks at the, the statistical age of vehicles in the fleet. And so we've used the 90% the threshold. At what age will a vehicle of a certain type well, at what age will 90% of vehicles of a certain type statistically have left the national fleet? And so what we see, this, if we, if we just recall back to the chart which showed that heavy vehicles like commercial and passenger vehicles are all contributors to our emissions pathway, what we see is that passenger vehicles, it takes 26 years for 90% of passenger vehicles to leave the fleet, it takes 33 years for 90% of buses to leave the fleet, 39 for light rigid vehicles, uh, Again, 39 for prime mover, and for heavy rigid vehicles, it's in excess of 50 years. So what this chart shows is the distribution of um, the age of vehicles in the fleet, and that gives us um, a, a level of attrition year to year, and then it gives us a likelihood that a vehicle is still in the fleet. So um, that 10% likelihood is what we've drawn for different vehicle types. And this is the chart that that, that orange line for passenger vehicles at the top uh, is replicated for a range of different vehicles at the bottom. Now, what that means, if we think about it, is um, at, at what point can we have a high level of certainty that old, dirty vehicles will have left the fleet? And more importantly, by when will the last of those vehicles need to have been sold? So if we want to have certainty that 90% uh, of internal combustion engine um, passenger vehicles will have left the fleet by 2050, we need to sell our last ICE passenger vehicle in 2024, which means 100% EV penetration in four years' time. If we want to see 100% of buses being electrical by uh, um, 2050, we need to have sold our or commissioned our last uh, internal combustion engine bus in 2017. Uh, for light rigid or prime mover vehicles, that date goes further back to 2011. And for heavy rigid vehicles, it goes back to 2000. Now, that frames a different question for us. While most of our effort at the moment has been on how do we support new electric vehicle sales, this frames the question of how do we get uh, relatively higher emissions vehicles out of the fleet uh, within the timeframes that we're speaking about? And that raises a whole range of, of policy and investment questions that um, would require a great deal more analysis to answer author authoritatively. What this paper does is it points to the challenge that we have already invested in fairly long-lived infrastructure that relies on fossil fuels. 
and yet the commitments we've made and the trajectories we want to get onto are not consistent with those investments. So where does that leave us? Um, I think it leaves us with a question around uh, what are our other opportunities? Um, we have a material challenge in emissions reduction. Uh, we have some global challenges. We have a national and jurisdictional level of ambition. Um, we have a, a policy ambition to, to reduce emissions. We have a couple of levers, electric vehicles being one, um, that are important, but perhaps not quite sufficient to achieve our ambition, and certainly not sufficient uh, to achieve our global task. And so what else might we do? Um, now, in considering emissions reduction in the road sector, we really have three big opportunities. We can reduce the VKT for a given transport task. So we can use less transport to achieve the same mobility outcome, if I can put it that way. So that's, that, that, that's one big thing we can seek to drive. Um, we can reduce the emissions per VKT, so that's vehicle efficiency, really. Uh, that's where the electric vehicle sits. So the EV conversation sits very firmly in the reducing emissions per vehicle kilometer traveled. Um, it doesn't really address the VKT required for the task quite yet. And then we can look at modal reallocation. We can take tasks that are currently undertaken with fossil fuels on roads. And if we're a little bit slow in being able to transition that bit of the network, we may be able to take some of those tasks and put them onto a different mode or put them onto a different piece of the network. For instance, active mobility and the ability to get people out of passenger vehicles and onto bicycles within the inner city environment might be one modal reallocation strategy that could drive emissions reduction by a certain amount. Now, we've looked at five uh, opportunities, or I wouldn't say looked at in detail, we've identified five opportunities and it's actually one of the areas for future work that we think would be really important is being able to explore these opportunities and, and provide some quantified analysis of what role they could play and under what circumstances could they play a role in driving down emissions. Um, road pricing is a particularly interesting one. Road pricing brings with it the opportunity to allocate the costs of emissions at the point of emission so we can close the feedback loop between the behavioral decision to emit um, as a result of carbon, and we can start to create incentives for electrification, for modal shift, for a range of different things. So road pricing is a lever that gives us lots of opportunities. Uh, we've seen, for instance, that uh, in Paris and Madrid, um, congestion charging has led to the ability to limit diesel vehicles going into city centers. So we see a, a range of policy levers around road pricing, whether it's corridor pricing or, or zonal congestion pricing, that can be used as, a, as an effective lever in, in, in driving down emissions. Mobility as a service, just excuse me for a sec. Mobility as a service also offers um, material benefits. So mass gives us a different set of levers for driving emissions. Um, in some car share or, or, or other uh, uh, ride share type applications, we may see the economic case for early vehicle electrification strengthen because um, those, those businesses uh, that operate fleet cars may have much stronger um, financial incentives to have lower emitting cars. Um, those incentives could also be driven and, and provide an opportunity through other forms of policy. 
for instance, if we are looking at um, policy that does drive vehicle change, um, it may be that mobility as a service is less sensitive to those sorts of policies than privately owned vehicles. And so the question of ownership uh, is politically uh, uh, an important consideration in terms of our ability as a society to begin to make decisions for how we reduce um, emissions in the transport sector. Travel demand management is another, and TDM then speaks to our land use strategy. So we, we know that uh, changing the way we think about land use can change the way we think about transportation. Travel demand management becomes a, a key consideration in, in driving land use change and, and how we can get to compact walkable cities, cities that are connected with public mobility. Um, there are a range of outcomes in the, the, the TDM bucket that could be configured with a view to driving down emissions. Within the freight and logistics space, uh, we see a whole range of, of opportunities. Uh, we're seeing um, the, the automation of freight, we're seeing unmanned aerial vehicles, we're seeing electrification of, of some conventional freight, uh, we're seeing major investments in, in, in rail-based freight corridors. Uh, there are a range of opportunities. Um, again, this is an area that's probably, it, it's, it, it's too big to try and capture within the context of this paper, except to note that we already have seen some material success. Because the freight sector has traditionally had some of the more polluting vehicles from an air quality perspective, we have already seen policy interventions as a result of air quality that have allowed us to remove some of the most polluting vehicles from the network in the freight sector. And so having made some early wins, there may be further opportunities to view the freight sector through the lens of greenhouse gas emissions as well as air quality. And I'll come back to co-benefits in a minute because we are going to be drawing to a close relatively shortly. Um, the final one that, that may be worth considering in terms of other levers uh, is the relationship between parking and, um, and transport modal choice. So where we're able to use parking, or in fact, not just mode of choice, but a range of different behavior trends. Uh, from an urban design perspective, we know that parking is one of the major drivers of decision-making in terms of whether people choose to drive to a destination or whether they choose other modes, or if they have access to parking as a result of one particular vehicle type or, or, and not another, it may drive behavior choice in terms of, um, of vehicle selection. So, um, urban parking provides another lever for how we're able to address emissions within the road sector. Now, one of the benefits of greenhouse gas emissions is that by addressing emissions, we actually address a large number of other um, positive outcomes in terms of amenity, in terms of competitiveness. Uh, the first and most obvious one is the air quality and healthcare impact. And I mean, we saw a lot of the story of that just over the last few months with this COVID crisis that we we're still in, 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 in all honesty. Um, but what we have seen is that air quality has been materially improved by reducing the amount of people on the roads. Now, air quality has a material health benefit. So when we're looking at the economics of the transition, we need to start to build models that allow us to capture the benefits that accrue in the healthcare sector, the benefits that accrue to people through better health in the decisions we make around decarbonization. Because the, the air quality impact of transportation are very, very closely linked to the air quality impacts of transportation. Um, another area is around place branding and innovation. So in the global quest for talent, uh, in the space we're in where cities are seeking to attract 
major investment. They're seeking to attract global corporates to their cities. Those global corporates are involved in a, in a global talent war and are seeking to attract the best and brightest. Now, um, decarbonization and sustainability broadly, but also innovation in the context of energy, these are some of the brand markers that cities can use to differentiate themselves in a global marketplace for innovation. And so if you're able to show a, a forethought for innovative and strategic view to transportation, you can start to um, create a, a brand of innovation and competitiveness that, is, uh, that supports investment and innovation. Another code benefit is fuel security. Um, Australia relies on imported fossil fuels uh, to quite a high degree. Um, there have recently been a number of initiatives to improve our, our fossil fuel reserves and our emergency reserves through our bilateral relations with the United States. However, we have an absolute plethora of wind and solar resources. And so the emissions reduction as it relates to electrification uh, provides a huge opportunity for us to change the material balance of our fuel security from being primarily reliant on imports to primarily reliant on our own clean energy sector. Road safety is another. So we see some material road safety benefits in the electric vehicle sector in particular. Um, some of just the, the vehicle dynamics of batteries and, and motors and large crumple zones instead of internal combustion engines at the front of cars can support much higher safety standards uh, for, for road vehicles. And then finally, we see land use benefits. Um, as we, if you, if you put yourself into the mind of what does the future look like where we've addressed emissions and you look at both reducing VKT and reducing congestion, um, reducing or changing mode and achieving modal shift onto, onto other transport modes, um, these things actually support much better use of our land resources within our cities, which is the most valuable land that we have. So our ability to affect a transition within the transport sector around greenhouse gas emissions can have benefits in how we plan our cities, how we grow our cities, and ultimately uh, the competitiveness and quality of the cities that we build. Now, what does all, when we, when, we, when we try and tie this all together, what we can see is that there are a number of technical levers available to network managers um, to support emissions reduction. It's um, those, those initiatives are, are all network-related initiatives. Um, however, at the heart of this challenge is really the, the recognition that emissions are a, an important consideration and should be a priority for the management of our roads. We have a long history of prioritizing safety and efficiency, and for good reason, uh, and, and I must say, to, to substantial success. But what this paper presents is that there may be a need for strategic rebalancing that includes greenhouse gas emissions reduction alongside safety and efficiency as a third priority. And so we end up with more of a tripartite approach to network management where the need to or the imperative to reduce emissions is put alongside the imperative to improve safety and the imperative to improve our overall network efficiency in making broad-based policy decisions. Um, and so where does that leave us? Well, I'll, um, I'll close off now and we can go to questions shortly. But essentially the story that we've told today is that there is a global economic case for targeting one and a half degrees. Uh, the, the, the number of one and a half degrees is not arbitrary. It's probably the best case scenario that's in reach. 
and that every fraction of a degree that we can get closer to one and a half degrees rather than two degrees uh, comes with substantial long-term benefits or the avoidance of substantial long-term costs to our societies. Uh, we know that our nationally developed contributions of all countries are not yet sufficient to meet that one and a half degree goal. Now that asks more questions of us um, because it suggests that uh, our level of ambition needs to rise. And where our level of ambition needs to rise to is in the order of a 50% reduction from 2018 levels, 100% reduction by, by 2030, 100% reduction by 2050, and net negative emissions um, in the back half of the century. What we do see is that all of the states and territories in Australia and the New Zealand national um, government have all made the commitment to that second target, to 100% reduction by, 20, um, by, by 2050. So we have an enabling policy environment at the moment that we're going to need to respond to. Now, we do need to respond because left unabated, our emissions will continue to drive emissions growth. They will not continue to drive emissions reduction. So business as usual road network at the moment is inconsistent with that stated ambition of net zero emissions. So there's definitely some level of intervention that's necessary if we're going to achieve that level of emissions reduction. And we probably need moderate or accelerated policy interventions in support of EV sales because the business as usual approach to EV sales is not going to have a material role in driving down those emissions trajectories by 2030. It also points to us needing to have policy around the retirement of older vehicles from the fleet and that we will need to give serious consideration to that policy uh, because it will have many uh, consequences and impacts that may not be predicted at the start. However, it's probably on the critical path and necessary if driving down emissions is a core part of our ambition. Finally, there are several practical opportunities for address addressing emissions reduction in the road sector, uh, supporting the adoption of EVs, supporting the retirement of inefficient vehicles from the fleet, encouraging behavior change through modal choice, et cetera. Uh, and network managers do have a number of levers that they can pull and consider from a policy perspective. Um, there are a great many co-benefits to choosing to pull these levers, co-benefits that manifest for, for cities, um, health benefits, competitiveness benefits, and broader economic benefits. And in order to realize these benefits, in order to address the policy ambitions, what we're recommending is that network operators and agencies will need to seriously consider emissions as a priority alongside efficiency and safety in their policy-making framework moving forward. So on that note, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your attention. Uh, and I look forward to any questions you might have. And Elena, I think at this point, I hand back to you and on we go. Thanks so much, Richard. That's a, been a terrific presentation. Um, we do have lots of questions. Um, oh, wow. So I've just taken okay. <laughs> slide 19. Um, so the first question we've got is, um, and also Richard Del Place is going to join us for the Q&A. Hi, Richard Del Place, welcome. Um, so question, question for slide 19, why are transport emissions increasing? Is it because we've got more vehicles on the road? Is it more intensive use of vehicles? Or is it just that we've got less efficient vehicles, such as the growing market share of SUVs? Um, so the, the short answer is I don't know precisely, but I will share some thoughts on, on what might be driving it. Um, one of the most obvious considerations that occurs to me is that our economy has continued to grow year on year for, well, until this past quarter, 
for the past 25 years. Australia has had unprecedented continual economic growth and that that economic growth has driven an increase in the demand for transport tasks. Uh, more growth means more freight, means uh, more people, means more jobs. Um, what we have also seen, particularly in, in Sydney and Melbourne, is um, unprecedented population and urban growth. So we've seen that both through urbanization, uh, we've also seen that through immigration. And so uh, Sydney and Melbourne have both grown strongly uh, and probably the fastest of any major cities in the OECD. So my, my I, I suppose that the combination of economic growth and population growth are the primary drivers of growing transportation emissions over time. Um, I would be, I, I don't know for sure, and it's definitely a question worth asking is the role to which uh, differences in vehicle choice uh, have made in terms of the, the rate of that growth. Um, given the moderate impact projected for EVs, uh, if we cast that back, I'd be slightly surprised if the vehicle choice has been a major driver of that emissions trajectory, but it certainly could be a, a contributing factor and, and larger passenger vehicles would certainly play into that story as well. Great, thank you very much. So I'll take us to slide 22. Yep. Okay, we've got a few questions that relate to um, electric vehicles. So um, one of the questions is, how strong is the actual economic case for electric vehicles? Um, does that economic um, return only consider decarbonisation from emissions? Does it also um, consider the materials in production and, um, yeah, is it a total life cycle analysis of the vehicle or is it simply an emissions um, return? Um, so there, there are a couple of points here. Uh, so let me start with the, the whole of life. Um, the, uh, we have not picked up any uh, clear disclosures in, in, in the research that informed this paper as to whether or not the, the emissions differential between in internal combustion engine and um, and electric vehicles is uh, includes whole of life or whether it's just operating. Um, there may be an indication that electric vehicles, because of the energy density of batteries, do have a moderately higher embodied um, emissions content compared to um, internal combustion engine vehicles, but I would have to take that on notice. I can't say that authoritatively. Um, however, what is clear is that the operating efficiency of an electric vehicle drivetrain and the combination of a clean grid do lead to very, very substantial operating emissions reductions within the EV, um, within EV operations. So my, um, I'll draw a, 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 a comparison um, within the renewable energy sector. Uh, photovoltaic panels do have an embodied energy component, but that embodied energy component is very, very rapidly superseded by the amount of clean energy they generate compared to more dirty um, generation. I suspect that the trend is similar with respect to electric vehicles. Um, but the second question, the second, sorry, the first part of that question related to the economic case for electric vehicles. Now, 
there are a number of ways that electric vehicles engage economically, and there are different um, under different peak penetrations. There, there are different economic winners and losers. Um, what we see is that consumers ultimately, I think the, the the last research that I saw on this suggested that on a, a like for like level, uh, once an electric vehicle drove about 25,000 kilometers a year, um, that was the point at which um, it broke even on a whole of life cost for consumers. So there's a there's a use threshold at which electric vehicles have an economic case for consumers. Um, there is also consideration around the benefit that utilities get, the loss that the fossil fuel sector gets rather obviously, um, the impact on the, the vehicle maintenance sector. So there are winners and losers uh, economically in the transition from internal combustion to electric vehicles for a range of reasons. Um, on balance, though, from the research that I've seen, uh, which has pr primarily been research I've seen from McKinsey, uh, the suggestion is that electric vehicles have an overall economic benefit uh, in, in the broadest sense, um, but that that benefit is not evenly distributed. There are certain sectors that see more benefit and there are other sectors that do seek to lose out as a result. Does that answer the question enough? I think so. <laughs> That's a great okay. answer. So I'm going to leave us on this slide, but um, it's, we've had a, quite a few questions about uh, the role of hydrogen-powered vehicles and whether you think that they can contribute to decarbonisation, um, particularly for freight and passenger transport. Um, so in the, the definition around EVs, uh, usually that includes battery electric vehicles, hydrogen electric vehicles, plug-in hybrids, um, it doesn't usually include um, petrol hybrids, so I, I don't believe. I think plug-in is usually where that boundary is drawn, uh, but certainly the projections around EVs as a class uh, include the consideration of, of um, hydrogen electric vehicles, um, or hydrogen battery hybrids. Uh, the role of hydrogen, I mean, transportation anecdotally certainly appears to be one of the key areas being looked at for the hydrogen economy. Uh, the energy density of hydrogen makes it an attractive consideration for freight vehicles where range anxiety around battery energy density may be a consideration or a concern. Uh, it certainly shows a great deal of promise. Um, I think we've just seen uh, Nikolai, I believe, the firm in the US list on the NASDAQ and race to one of the largest market caps or something to that effect. Um, speak under correction on that one, but there's, there's certainly some indication that hydrogen is looking relatively positive. Uh, however, I mean, I'm, I'm not a hydrogen expert, as you might pick up in the slight hesitancy in the response. So it looks positive. Uh, Richard, do you have anything to add to that? I, I, I just want to point out that the, um, the, the report I just mentioned, the discussion paper that the, um, the Department of Industry at the Commonwealth level has, has, has recently released, flags that hydrogen is, uh, is a key short-term priority in terms of research to understand the technology and its capabilities. And, uh, and then in the medium term, that discussion paper is, is encouraging to look at how hydrogen can be scaled up. So I think it is, yeah, I, I do believe it is, a, it is a key opportunity as well, uh, not necessarily one that we flagged in our report. There's, uh, to be honest, there are many that we haven't flagged in our report. Um, being the paper being focused on defining the issue rather than yet defining the solutions. Uh, but yes, hydrogen yeah. is a key is a key opportunity, and especially in the freight the freight sector 
um, as supported again by by Commonwealth uh, research and discussion papers on the go. Great, thanks guys. So um, I will take us to slide 25. We've had a few questions that relate to um, the different types of levers that are available. Um, so, uh, and actually maybe, oh, oh, yeah, maybe 26 is a little bit uh, more relevant. Um, so uh, there's a few questions uh, relating to uh, changes in working conditions now with um, the COVID pandemic. So we've seen lots of people um, readily work from home. There's been a really significant change for the community and they've adopted that really well. Um, have you considered the um, opportunity for um, working from home as a, as a change that um, might impact on decarbonisation? Uh, so subsequent to finalising the draft report, yes, absolutely, we have considered <laughs> that role. Uh, no, uh, in some ways, it was a, 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 a question of timing. I think when I look back into December 2019, uh, if you had suggested to me that we could very rapidly transition 80% of our, uh, our knowledge economy to a work from home, remote working environment, I might have been hesitant uh, to suggest that that was a, a really strong basis for driving emissions reduction through policy. Uh, I would probably seriously reconsider that answer now. Uh, so I think, I mean, obviously the way that we inhabit space in our, in our cities has changed and uh, the way that the behavior, community behavior has changed. Um, how enduring that change will be I mean, I, I, there's some really interesting perspectives uh, from people like Richard Florida, um, the uh, urban dynamics lead at the, at the University of Toronto, um, around cities, the, the, the broad resilience of cities in the face of pandemics, and the fact that people still see value in clustering because when we come together, we, we end up doing good things. Um, so I think there's a, a really plausible trajectory where a lot of our relationship between suburbs and cities certainly, I'm not going to say goes back to normal, um, but certainly that there is a greater level of engagement back with passenger vehicle transportation than perhaps there has been. I mean, there's even some forecasts that actually, for safety reasons, we'll see a trend towards greater car use rather than public transportation use as a result of people's fears of being in confined spaces. So we, I think it's too soon to tell uh, what the impact of work from home will be. Certainly there will be an impact um, from this, this new trend. I mean, I'm sitting at home, Richard's sitting at home. We wouldn't ordinarily be undertaking this event from home, uh, but here we find ourselves. So certainly there will be impact. Certainly there will be changes, but I think there are some changes that could challenge this transition. The idea that people really want to be in their own cars more. Um, and possibly other opportunities around fewer people traveling that could support this outcome. Um, I certainly hope for the latter, uh, but I guess we'll see. Great. Well, look, just one final question, I think, which is, um, and probably more for Richard Del Place. Um, Richard, where to from here uh, for the Austroads Network Program? Yeah, thank you. That, that's a very good question. I don't know if that comes from you, Elena, but that's a very good one. Um, uh, where to from here? So this issue's paper really 
uh, obviously as uh, focuses on, on defining the issue. And, and as we've seen in a, in a very quick summary, there is a call uh, for look beyond vehicle electrification uh, and, and low and zero emission vehicles, even if yes, it is a key initiative uh, to, to lowering uh, our emissions down the track. Um, but we need to look at, 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 at what's next. So what's next for us, there's a number of um, work and projects uh, that we are planning to undertake next financial year that very much relate to this opportunity and, and this challenge of, of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in road transport. Uh, one of them is um, reviewing, revising our guide to traffic management um, and especially reflecting on the changing strategic objectives of road and road transport agencies state and local and federal government. As we flag in this presentation, we focus on safety, network efficiency, as well as accessibility of transport, the way uh, transport supports economy, jobs, and so forth. But there is an additional dimension that we need to take into consideration more and more in everything we do in planning and operation of our road transport network, and that's to do with greenhouse gas emissions reduction. This is not a problem that will be resolved by others, uh, this is a problem for, for most, if not all, and everybody's got to take actions as we've seen through this presentation. So the strategic review of the guide to traffic management is going to be the key action. On the freight sector, we are also looking at developing improved guidance for road freight access and productivity next financial year. Uh, potentially, or very likely, I would say, with the development of a, of a guide for road freight productivity especially addressed to uh, road managers at local and state level. And we are also looking at developing a business case for a national heavy vehicle bridge assessment system. It sounds technical and it is technical, but it also it's all about um, improving uh, access to um, freight vehicles to make sure that we have uh, the right freight vehicles on the right routes for the right freight tasks. Uh, and and that's, that's another opportunity to leverage of this research that we've seen today and turning it into more applicable action and practical guidance for road managers. Great, thanks so much, Richard. And um, look, thank you to both of you. Um, a really terrific presentation today. Um, we did only get through, I, I'm guessing maybe a third of the questions. So um, I do apologize if we didn't answer your question in the live session, but we will respond to all of the questions um, through a Q&A sheet, which we'll issue um, after, the, after the webinar. It might take us a couple of weeks to get that back to you, but we will certainly respond. Um, so just before we close out, I wanted to let you know about the upcoming webinars, particularly the Vehicles and Technology Future State 2030 um, session, which is coming up on the 6th of August. Uh, the decarbonisation issues paper drew on the work of this project very heavily and um, the report isn't out yet, but we have the details of the webinar up on our website, so you can sign up for that. Um, we've also just recently put up a, a session on transport modelling for project managers, um, which may be of interest to you guys as well. So thank you everybody for your great questions and your participation today. Thank you Richard Duplace and Richard Palmer for your um, time today. As we close you, out Anna. the session today, um, we're going to send you a, um, a, a survey that just asks you for some feedback. 
um, on today's session. It, it just helps us to shape the future sessions and understand what works for you and what doesn't work. And we definitely read everything that you send us. So please send us back some feedback, that would be really helpful. So thanks again, everybody. We hope you stay safe and well, and that you enjoy the rest of your day. See you later. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, guys. Bye.